Welcome to the Dick Schroeder Podcast. Dick draws his teaching from a deep well of love for the Bible and 50 years of strategic ministry among university students. Enjoy this episode and remember, your Father in Heaven loves you. Well, today I want to talk about and a difficult, another difficult attribute of God, especially an attribute that we don't, we don't have a real clear picture of in the New Testament thinking, especially in the dispensation of grace, which is what we're under, under the New Covenant. We, we, we tend to think of God's anger being absorbed in, in Jesus when he died on the cross. But I want to show us today where God still gets angry with us as New Testament Christians at certain things. And we need to have a respect and a real understanding of God's anger. And we need to blend that in once again to all of the other aspects and attributes of God's character. We talked about his love. We've talked about his mercy. We've talked about his justice and his holiness. We've talked about his faithfulness, and today we're going to talk about his anger. And we need to see that all of these are all tied together. They're all consistent. And as we spoke last week from A.W. Tozer, all of God's attributes are, are involved in every decision he makes. It's not, it's not, we are not to picture a God that's unstable, always wondering, well, should I be just or should I be merciful? And this kind of tottering, that is not an accurate picture of God. But all of God's attributes are involved in every decision that he makes. I think it's a rather unsettling thought to me that God could be angry with me at this moment. That's kind of an unsettling thought, isn't it? To think that maybe God is angry with me. And that could, that could be a very unsettling thought. I remember when I grew up, my, my dad was a very good father figure to me. And he had a very balanced view between his, his love and kindness and his, uh, as well as his anger and wrath. And I remember that when my dad would get angry with me and speak to me in a certain tone of voice, I would have a very definite emotional reaction. I, I got afraid in a, in a right way. When, I got, when my dad got angry, I was afraid because when I did something to provoke his anger, it was because I had done something wrong, not because he was inconvenienced, but it was because some e- eternal principle had been broken and there were certain kinds of behavior and attitudes that were not tolerated in my, in my family. And when I crossed those lines, the wrath of my father came upon me. And it it rather surprised me. I was painting my dad's house the year I got married in 78. And we were out painting and my dad was helping me and we were having really a a fine time doing it together. And my dad suggested that I paint something a certain way. And I said, no, dad, I'm going to do it this way. And he said, well, Dick, do it this way. It'll be easier. And I said, no, dad, I think I'll do it this way. My dad got kind of irritated with me and he said, Richard, like he usually did when he got mad. I still had that same emotional reaction, like, oh no, I'm going to get a licking. (laughs) But (laughs) of course he didn't, he didn't do that. But it was, it it was good because I have a fear of consequences because my dad instilled that in me when I was little through discipline and through spanking. By the way, that's what spanking does to children. It, it, it puts in their, in their heart, in their psyche, an understanding that there's bad consequences for wrong action. A child does not understand, no, don't do that. Don't do that, you're going to be hurt. A child does not have the understanding to comprehend what that means. But he does understand the pain on his bottom. 
And that instills in him a fear of God, a fear of, of authority, not a good kind of fear, a respect and an honor for authority. And that's, that's what, one of the things our parents should instill in us. If your parents were good parents and, and did discipline you, then you're going to have a lot less trouble comprehending the anger of God. But if, if you were raised in, in, in the kind of home where you di- weren't disciplined very much, then you need to seek the Lord and ask him to show you what his discipline is like. Because it's necessary we understand God's anger. Now, why would, why would God be angry with us? In John 3.36, the scripture says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides in, on him. And so we can naturally conclude from that that people that are in disobedience to God, naturally the wrath of God would be against those people. And we'd say, sure, God is angry with sinners. But what about us as Christians? And that's what I want to investigate today. In Romans 11.32, Paul makes this statement. He says, behold then the kindness and severity of God Now, he's speaking in regard to Israel and the nation of Israel, in this case, in Romans 11. And he says, to those who fell, speaking of Israel who fell away, to those who fell severity, but to you, God's kindness. Now, there's a condition. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise, you will also be cut off. Now, that's another verse that can be a bit unsettling, isn't it? Saying that, well, behold, then the kindness and the severity of God. To those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will be cut off. And the scripture wants us to balance these two concepts of kindness and severity. Kindness and severity, they're like on a uh, teeter-totter, and both uh, um, kindness is at one end, severity is on the other. And we need to see both of these concepts in, in balance which, with each other. Now, when we read the scripture, we need to be careful that we don't edit out the verses that we don't like. We need to be very careful that we don't edit out of the Bible, even if we do it just mentally, edit out the scriptures that we're uncomfortable with. And this is one of the, this is one of the concepts uh, the, the attribute of God, God's anger that as, as New Testament people living in the, new, in the 20th century, we have a tendency just to cut off the anger of God and think that, well, Jesus took that, so God's not angry anymore. And that's not altogether true. I want to read you a quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. How many of you are familiar with Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Very tremendous. Uh, he was a Lutheran man. He lived during the time of World War I and World War II. In fact, he died in prison in Hitler's in, in uh, one of Hitler's prisons shortly before the war ended. He, he died, as it were, a martyr for his faith. And he's a, a man who has some very provoking questions in his books. I would highly recommend any of his books to you. He has one called Life Together, another one, The Cost of Discipleship, and another book on ethics. And all are very meaty and thought-provoking books. I want to read you a quote by him that he gave to a Bible conference in 1932 in Glans, Switzerland. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, The great concern which has been bearing down on me with growing heaviness throughout this whole conference, has it not become terrifyingly clear again and again in everything that we have said here to one another that we are no longer obedient to the Bible? The more we are more fond of our own thoughts than the thoughts of the Bible. We no longer read the Bible seriously, we no longer read it against ourselves. 
but for ourselves. If the whole of our if the whole of our conference here is to have any great significance, it may be perhaps that of showing us that we must read the Bible in quite a different way until we find ourselves again. And he is addressing this, this business as of editing certain parts of the scripture or certain verses that we don't like and that don't seem to fit into our concept of God. We need to, we need to not do that. We have a tendency in our choruses and our hymns, don't we, to emphasize the kindness of God. We, have, we even have a song that says, God is so good. God is so good. God is so good. He's so good to me. But if we're to be really honest in our, uh, in, in our study of the scripture, we had better add a verse, God is so severe. God is so severe. God is so severe. He's so severe towards me. And that is equally true, isn't it? That is equally true. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, another book I'd highly recommend to you, he says this, to an age which has unashamedly sold itself to the gods of greed, pride, sex, and self-will, the church mumbles on about God's kindness, but says nothing about his judgment. And isn't, I think we're guilty of that, aren't we? Saying so much about the kindness and the love of God that we have neglected the other side of the coin, which talks about God's, well, it talks about his anger and his justice and his judgment. Psalms 101, David has a, a good balance of both of these concepts. He says, I will sing of the loving kindness and judgment. To thee, O Lord, I will sing praises. So David says, I will both sing of the judgment of the Lord and of the loving kindness of the Lord. The words that are associated with anger, such as anger, wrath, indignation, fury, vengeance, displeasure, appear over 500 times in the Bible. And that is more times than the words of love and tenderness are found. And so actually the scripture has more to say about God's judgment and his anger than it does about his loving kindness and his tenderness. Now what is God's anger? Let's, let's define God's anger. <clears throat> First of all, God's anger is not like man's. It's not like our human anger. God's anger originates in perfect, perfect holiness and justice. God's anger originates in perfect holiness and justice, and it's free from all the contaminations of sin and human finiteness that characterize man. It is free from all contaminations of sin and human finiteness that characterize man. Ephesians 4.26 says, to be angry and yet do not sin. Be angry and do not sin. And so the New Testament exhorts us to be angry in a way that God is angry. And God, when he is angry, he does not sin as so many times we as humans sin when we're angry. And the scripture, the second part of that verse also says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. If you're going to be angry with something, if you're, going to be, if you're going to have righteous anger, make sure that you get it resolved before you go to sleep at night because pent-up anger will destroy you. Pent-up anger, by the way, is the root cause of depression. Anger that instead of is let out, it's focused on yourself. And that's why one of the root causes why people get depressed and go into depression is because that anger is pent up inside. And it, and it turns out to be a, um, the, the quality of, of depression. 
and that, that is caused by internal anger. So the scripture says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. If you're angry about something, get it resolved. If you're unrighteously angry, repent and get that right. But if you're righteously angry, make sure you get it resolved before you go to sleep at night. God's wrath is a personal quality without which God would cease to be fully righteous. God's wrath is a personal quality without which God would cease to be fully righteous and his love would degenerate into sentimentality or sloppy agape. Without God's wrath, he would cease to be fully righteous and his love would degenerate into sentimentality. And God's wrath is not, a, is not wayward, fitful, or spasmodic as human anger always is. And it is, as permanent in, it is as permanent and as consistent an element in his character as is his love. You see, when God gets angry, it's not because he's inconvenienced. It's not just because he gets mad and goes into a temper tantrum. But when God is angry, there is just cause for his anger, and he executes his anger in righteousness and in love. It's consistent with his love and righteousness and mercy. Dr. James Orr says this of God's anger. God's anger is an energy of divine nature called forth by the presence of daring or presumptuous transgressions and expressing the reaction of divine holiness against it in punishment or destruction of the transgressor. It is the zeal of God for the maintenance of his holiness and honor of the ends of his righteousness and love. When these are threatened by the ingratitude, rebellion, and will for dis- disobedience or temerity of the creature, this anger is not pictured as in heathen religion, religions as mere outbursts of capricious passions, but always appears in union with the idea of divine holiness and as directed to the maintenance of the moral order of the world. The anger of God is a fact. More than that, it is a fact that, that vitally concerns us. Isaiah 12, 1 says, Thou wast angry with me. God's anger is not a smoldering emotion within himself. His anger is directed and is directed at us. If God did not feel anger at the sin he sees in this world, he would not be righteous. His anger towards those who have tampered with his handiwork His anger is towards those who have tampered with his handiwork, frustrated his plans, and ruined his creation. See, God's anger has an object, and it's the rebellion of man. Now, let me give you four qualities that God's anger has. God's anger has four qualities. I believe this will really enlighten this concept of anger. Number one, his anger is equal to his grief. His anger is equal to his grief. That is, when God displays his righteous anger against men in rebellion to himself, he has an equal and equally profound and deep sense of grief and sorrow that he must execute judgment upon them. He doesn't do it in this in this gleeful delight in executing judgment, but he does so with a broken heart because his, their rebellion demands that he must judge that. Second thing, his anger is impartial. God is angry with those who sin. God does not just get angry because he doesn't like you or he doesn't like your personality or, you know, he's angry at 
acts that are against his law, his moral law. Third, his anger is inescapable. His anger is inescapable. You can't get away from it. His anger is inescapable. And number four, his anger is consistent with the rest of his character. His anger is consistent with the rest of his character. Now, I want to put your mind at rest because God is angry with moral beings who openly reject his revealed will. Okay? God is angry with moral beings or people who openly reject his revealed will. God is not angry at us for our mistakes and failures. God is not angry with us when we fail, when we make mistakes, because when he sees that our heart is desiring to do the right thing, the Bible says there's no condemnation for that. And God doesn't get angry when you fall down and you're trying to do something right and you just keep slipping around and, and making mistakes. God's not angry with that. In fact, the, the Bible says he's, he's long-suffering. He's very, very, very patient. We, we spoke about his mercy. His mercy is renewed every morning. And so God does not get angry with us when we're seeking to do right and either by the weakness of our flesh or by lack of knowledge or by some, something goes astray somewhere. God is not angry with us over those things. God is only angry when we display open, defiant rebellion. God's only angry with us when we display open, defiant rebellion. And that's characterized by the attitude, I will not do this. I refuse to do this. And just like how many of you, when you were little, tried to talk back to your parents? What happened? Boom. At least in my family, the arm of the law came down. Remember one time I called my mom a sass ball. And I said, <laughs> oh boy, I smarted for a week over that. But I learned that I, was, I had no replace in sassing my mom. I had to have honor and respect for her. I learned that lesson the hard way. And see, God, my parents were never angry with me when I was just learning. I was learning to walk. My parents since spanked me the first time I tried to walk and fell down. But what did they do? They encouraged me and helped me along. But when I took on that posture of saying, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to do what I want to do. Then the arm of the law came down right on my bottom. (laughs) And that's the way God's anger is. God is only angry with you when you defy and openly rebel against his revealed will. See, it's again, it's something that you know you should be doing, and yet you're refusing to do it. And not just once, but it's a persistent thing, thing where you just continually are going your own way and doing your own thing. That is what kindles God's anger. Now, I want to look at some scriptures that demonstrate a picture of God's anger. We'll look at several of these together. Luke 21, verses 21 through 23. Jesus is speaking of a judgment that is going to come to Jerusalem He says, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are in the midst of the city depart and let not those who are are in the country enter the city because these days are days of vengeance in order that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Woe to those who are with child and to those who nurse babes in those days for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. Notice, I want you, the reason why I'm taking these from the New Testament is that the anger and the wrath of God is as much a New Testament concept as it is an Old Testament concept. So Jesus is saying that because Jerusalem is resisting 
the will of God and God's truth revealed to them, he said that wrath is going to come up, come upon this nation. And I believe that that it may be not ultimately fulfilled, but that was partially fulfilled in 70 AD when the Romans came in and totally destroyed the city of Jerusalem, totally took every stone apart, carried the people away, and Jerusalem was left a desolation. And that, that scripture was actually fulfilled. And it, it well may be again fulfilled um, in, in, the, in the last days in the prophecies concerning Israel. 1 Thessalonians 2, 14 through 16. 1 Thessalonians 2, 14 through 16. Paul had a lot of trouble with the Jews who were opposed to his teaching because he was opposing um, their concept that you were justified by the Jewish tradition. And so Paul ran into a lot of of trouble with these Jewish people. 1 Thessalonians 2, 14 through 16. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, For you also endured the same sufferings at the hand of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they may be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost." Paul is speaking of those who are the enemies of the gospel. Mark 3, 1 through 5. Some examples of Jesus and how Jesus displayed righteous anger. Mark 3, 1 through 5. Jesus comes and he enters again into a synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And the Pharisees were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath in order that they may accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, rise and come forward. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm or to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. And after looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Notice there's the anger, but there's the accompanying depth of grief. He looked at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. And in the next verse, you find that there was unrighteous anger in the Pharisees because their anger was an unrighteous anger. And they, from that point, began to plot to kill Jesus. Luke 14, verses 21 through 24. Luke 14, verses 21 through 24. This is the parable Jesus told of the man who prepared a great dinner and a whole bunch of guests were invited. And right at the last moment... The different guests who had been invited came and made excuses. One says, well, I've sold my house and i got to go close the deal. Another man says, I've got some friends coming from out of town. And another one had another excuse. And in verse 21, it says, Then the slave came back and reported this to his master, that none of the people invited came. Then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and into the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the slave said, Master, what you have commanded has been done and there is still room. And the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you that none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. And God through this parable is saying that he is angry with those who reject his loving kindness and his forgiveness. God is angry with people who reject 
the offer of salvation through Jesus Christ. God is angry with us. Matthew 23, verses 29 through 33, one of the illustrations where Jesus is angry at the Pharisees for their wrong attitudes and their wrong display of, of, of what God is like. Matthew 23, verses 29 through 33. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you who build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. And I say, and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Consequently, you bear witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how shall you escape the sentence of hell? And here Jesus is angry at the Pharisees because instead of leading people to God, they're leading people far away from God. And then in Matthew 18, Jesus spoke the parable of forgiveness, the man that was forgiven the $10 million debt, and he went out and didn't forgive the $10 debt that his fellow servant owed him, and he threw the fellow servant into debtor's prison. The king heard about it, and he brought back this man whom he had forgiven $10 million debt, and he says in verse 34, and his Lord was moved with anger, and he handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. God is angry with us when we refuse to forgive our brother. God is angry with us when we refuse to forgive people that hurt us. Just as he has forgiven us the $10 million debt, he expects us to go out and forgive the people that hurt us. And he's angry. He's moved with anger when we refuse to forgive. Now, one of the principles of God's wrath and anger is that not only in eternity is God's wrath revealed, but also in human history and in the day-to-day experience is the wrath of God revealed. First of all, we want to turn to Romans 18, 1.18. Romans 1.18. Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. See, Paul says that every man knows that what he is doing is wrong because the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. And you read on in that chapter, it's revealed in two ways. It's revealed in the conscience that every man has. And second, it's revealed in in the creation, the the designed, beautiful creation that we live in. The only conclusion you can come to is that a very wise and intelligent being created the universe. The whole philosophy of evolution is simply the product of man in rebellion to God. Read on into about verse 22. It says, professing to be wise, they became fools. The whole issue is that people don't want to admit there's a God because if they admit there's a God, then they're morally accountable. And the scripture says they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It's not that truth cannot be known, you guys, but it's that men suppress the truth. You know, it's like having 20 watermelons in a tank of water, and you're trying to push the watermelons down all the time. You've got to just keep pushing them because they all keep floating back to the surface, don't they? And that's what a man is doing. He runs from truth continually. He runs from it and because he does not want to forsake his own wicked ways. So God's wrath is continually being revealed to people who are in rebellion to God. And then the second one is in Romans 12, 19. This is the second way God's wrath is revealed. 
Romans 12, 19, Paul says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And so we need to leave room for the wrath of God, that when someone wrongs us, we need to forgive them and say, Lord, you're the avenger, and I'll allow you to execute your wrath upon the unrighteous people and upon things that you have done. How many of you heard of a man named Charles Finney? Charles Finney was an evangelist in the, in the 1800s and, and is probably one of, the, one of the most gifted evangelists that this nation has ever known. I highly recommend his autobiography, the autobiography of Charles Finney. He tells of several instances where he would go into a town and he would be preaching the word of God at night. And, and since there wasn't TV and all these other things, almost everybody in the town would come to a, a revival meeting because that was about the only thing there was to do. So everybody would come for these public meetings. And several times, I remember this one time, he talked of this, this old man in town who, was, who preached against Jesus. He preached against the, re, the revival and was speaking bad. And he was bad-mouthing Charles Finney, telling lies about him. And Charles Finney, knowing that he wasn't to take his own vengeance, he never said a thing about it. He didn't defend himself. They all, but the church went to prayer. And one night, God struck that man dead by lightning. And the fear of God came upon the whole New England states because they heard that this man had mocked the revival and God had struck him down. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And we need to let God be the avenger when we're wronged. If you're wronged in a business deal, let God be the avenger. You don't need to avenge your own wrongs. Leave room for the wrath of God. Then number three is Romans 13, verses 4 through 5. And this has to do with the civil government. Romans 13, verses 4 and 5. Government, it says, for it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid for what it does, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. And so God has ordained government in the earth, and, and we get the government that we deserve. And government executes judgment upon people who disobey the laws, don't they? That's why you get speeding fines. You, you, you are partaking of the wrath of God when you are going too fast, and you get a speeding ticket. Of course, it's not, it's not a great it's not, it's not the same level of, as, as other judgments, but it is a, it's the wrath of God being revealed. And it says also in this passage, if you do right, then you don't have any fear. Of, of the government, do you? If you're going the speed limit, it doesn't bother you if a highway patrol, you know, starts shining. You see a highway patrol in your rear view mirror. But if you're doing wrong, then it's a source of fear, isn't it? Because, you know, you get convicted that you're not doing what is right. So the civil government, see, is, a, is an instrument of God that God uses to punish the evildoer. Now, God's anger can range anywhere from Jesus when he rebuked the children in Mark 14. Mark 10, 14, he rebuked the disciples because they were hindering the children from coming to him. Mark 10, 14 says, but when Jesus saw this, they were kind of shooing the kids away because they wanted to come and see Jesus. He was indignant and said to them, permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And so anger can, the anger of God can be simply to a, a rebuke like that all the way to what is shown in Hebrews 3, verses 10 and 11. 
Hebrews 3, verses 10 and 11, God says, Therefore, I was angry with this generation, and I said, They always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So God says, I swear by myself that they shall not enter my rest. That's their, their rebellion to his ways were, was so intense that God simply declared that you will not enter my rest. You will not enter the purposes that I have for you. So God's anger can be all the way from light to extremely heavy. Now, I want to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and I want us to see the New Testament application of some principles from the Old Testament. And we need to see that God in the New Testament era is displeased and angry with certain sins. And I want to talk about those sins today. The the whole gist of 1 Corinthians 10 is learn from Israel. Learn from Israel's walk in the wilderness. Learn from what God did with those people, the nation that was delivered out of the land of Egypt. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Now that was all, that's all the blessings that Israel experienced with God in the wilderness. And all of us can, can, could list a similar, some similar experience to this because all of us have been baptized into Jesus Christ, haven't we? We're able to eat of the spiritual food of the word of God and we're able to drink of the spiritual drink, which is Jesus. And we've been given the Holy Spirit who's able to lead us into all truth. And the Holy Spirit who dwells within us grants us gifts, doesn't he? And so we have partaken of the Lord in this similar way. And yet verse 5 says, nevertheless, with most of them, hear that, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. And this is speaking of the generation that God delivered out of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness to himself in order that he might bring them into the promised land. And the following are some sins that, that that the, the Israelites never gave up. And because they were stubborn and rebellious and they refused to change, God was not able to take them into the promised land. And it said that God was not well pleased with them. God was angry with them. See, he's talking about his people. He's not talking about the heathen, but he's talking about his people. And these are examples to us. That, and, and God is angry with us in the same way when we partake of these sins. Psalms 106 and verse 29 says, Thus they provoked him to anger with their deeds, and the plague broke out among them. Therefore, verse 40, Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his inheritance. He abhorred his inheritance. And then verse 6 says, 1 Corinthians 10, 6, Now these things happened as examples for us, that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. 
There's a New Testament application. There's an immediate application that Paul is drawing on this Old Testament lesson. And he's saying God is still angry with the same things today. And he goes on to describe the things that God is still angry with. These are the things that make things angry, verses 7 through 11. And I'm just going to list them and then we'll come back to them. God is angry with idolatry. He's angry at immorality. He's angry at impatience with God and with grumbling. I'll give you those again shortly. Go down to verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction. These are recorded today for our instruction today upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And there's, there's kind of a double force here because God, Paul is saying that God judged these sins back then How much more should we pay attention to the word of God upon whom the end of the age has come? See, Paul is saying you are living at the end of the age. How much more should you pay attention and get free from these sins and not not abide on the angry side of God? Not, Not abide in God's anger, but abide in such a way with God that you please him instead of arouse his anger. Back in Hebrews 3, this is the proclamation that God had towards those who would not obey him in the wilderness. They were stubborn. They wanted to do their own thing, and they refused to, to do what God wanted them to do. Does that sound like some Christians today? Is God happy with us when we do those things? No, he's not. Verse 11, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And then verse 12 of Hebrews 3 is the New Testament application. He says, take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. That's the warning. The warning is that that we're not to harden our hearts when God speaks to us, but we're to obey him and respond in love. And that way, God will be pleasing to us. He will be pleased with us. And then Psalms 95, 6 through 11. This is what... That passage is quoted from Psalms 95, 6 through 11. It says this, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you would hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Now, remember when your father or your mother would speak to you? And if you didn't listen to them, what would happen? Then there would be some kind of consequences, wouldn't they? You know, you get cuffed on the side of the head or you get yelled at. Something would happen because that's not a very honorable thing to ignore your parents when they talk to you. Imagine how God feels when he says something to us and we just harden our hearts and go on as if he's not talking to us. Can you see why that makes God righteously angry when we do that? When we spurn him and we harden our hearts to him? So the scripture says, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the days days of Massa in the wilderness. That's when they grumbled when there was no water. When your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and and said, they are a people who err in their hearts and they do not know my ways. Therefore, I swore in my anger Truly, they shall not enter into my rest. 
Now, that's the declaration of a righteous and loving father. That's not the declaration of a God who's just lost patience with his people. That's the God who's perfect in patience. And their rebellion had gotten so intense that God said, I I just, you will not enter into my rest. And that's why they wandered in the desert for 40 years. Because until all of that generation died off, God was good to them. God took care of them. But they never entered into God's purposes. And if we resist and rebel against the revealed will of God for our lives, so too will we perish in the wilderness. The warning is clear. God can equally manifest his anger now as he did in the Old Testament. God's anger is not limited just to eternity, but God's anger could very well be displayed in our midst, just as it was in the Old Testament. Hebrews 12.25 adds a a deeper dimension of warning to this whole thing. Hebrews 12.25 says, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less shall we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And see, going back to the dealings of the wilderness, the people rebelled against Moses and, 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 and God who was speaking through Moses. And if, the, if that kind of judgment fell while Moses was speaking for God to the people here, how much severe will the punishment be if we refuse God who's warning us from heaven? God is warning us from heaven through his scripture and through his word that he's given us. The, the picture of anger, when it, many times the scripture uses the phrase, God kindled his anger. And so anger is like the fire. Anger is likened unto fire. And so God kindles his anger just like you would light a campfire. And God, when he is aroused to his anger, it's like a blast of consuming fire that, that consumes the adversaries. Now let's look at the four things that anger God in the New Testament. There's four things that anger God. The first thing that angers God is idolatry. First thing that angers God is idolatry. And that's from verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 10. That says this. And do not be idolaters as some of them were. And as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Now God had commanded in Exodus chapter 20 that we were to have no other gods before the living God, before the one and true living God. In Exodus 20, verses 3 and 4, it says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or 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 in the water under the earth. You shall not worship or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. Now, what an idol is, is simply a substitute for God. An idol is a substitute for God. Now, in the New Testament, we don't generally carve up little images. We're a little more sophisticated than that. But we have just as real idols as, as the, the people that did that. And our idols in the New Testament sense are anything that you put, you put your trust and security in. And then if you don't put your trust and security in God, then it is an idol. So an idol is anything that you put your trust and security in. 
For example, how many of you have insurance in here? Life insurance. Not many of you. You say if you do, is your security in the life insurance or is it in God? If your security is in your life insurance, then you're idle. You're an idol worshiper and God is not pleased with that. How about your job? Is your job your security? The fact that your job pays you a certain amount of money every month? If that is your security, then you are idol worshiping your job and you're not trusting and having your security in God first. So man is deceived and deluded when he trusts in what never can give him any help at all. Man is deceived and deluded because he is trusting in, in what can never give him any help at all. I'm going to read you Isaiah 44, verses 9 through 20 from the Living Bible. This is rather humorous. And, and, and Isaiah really takes a poke at those who worship idols. Now, this is in the context of physical idols, but I want you to see the New Testament application that it's just as foolish to put our trust in things that are not of God. It's just as foolish for us to put our trust in jobs, in security, in money, in the future of, uh, of America, whatever we put our security in. Our security must be in the living God. Isaiah says, What fools they are who manufacture idols for their gods. Their hopes remain unanswered. They themselves are witnesses that this is so, for their idols neither see nor know. No wonder what those who worship them are so ashamed. Who but a fool would make his own God an idol that can help him do that can help him not one whit. All that worship these will stand before the Lord in shame, along with these carpenters, mere men, who claim that they have made a God. Together they will stand in terror. The metalsmith stands at his forge to make an axe, pounding on it with all his might. He grows hungry and thirsty, weak and faint. Then the woodcarver takes the axe and uses it to make an idol. He measures and marks out a block of wood and carves the figure of a man. Now he has a wonderful idol that can't so much as move from where it is placed. He cuts down cedars. He selects the cypress and the oak. He plants the ash in the forest to be nourished by the rain. And after his care, he uses part of the wood to make a fire to warm himself and bakes his bread. And then he really does. He really does. He takes the rest of it and makes himself a god, a god for men to worship, an idol to fall down before and praise. Part of the tree he burns to roast his meat and to keep him warm and fed and well content. And with what's left, he makes his god a carved idol. He, he falls down before it and worships it and prays to it. Deliver me, he says. You are my god. Such stupidity and ignorance. God has shut their eyes so they cannot see and closed their minds from understanding. The man never stops to think or figure out why it's just a carved block of wood. I've burned it for heat and used it to break my bread and roast my meat. How can the rest of it be a god? Should I fall down before a chunk of wood? The poor deluded fellow feeds on ashes. He is trusting what can never give him any help at all. Yet he cannot bring himself to ask, Is this thing, this idol that I am holding in my hand, a lie? And how, how, how beautiful it is to think of the systems of thought that man have created themselves and think that they will save them. The, their philosophies and their, their humanism will save them. It's just as foolish for a man to carve an idol out of wood as it is to mentally carve an image that leaves out the living God. And thinking that his humanism will somehow save him. And that's where our age is at. People trust in humanism. People believe that 
that our own thoughts are going to save us. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. I want to read this from the Living Bible. Colossians 3, verses 5 and 6. It says this, Away then with sinful earthly things, deaden the evil desires lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual sin, impurity, lust, and shameful desires. And don't worship the good things of life, for that is idolatry. Don't worship the good things of life, for that is idolatry. And 1 John 5.21, the scripture says, Little children, guard yourself from idols. But I want to read this from the Amplified Version of the Bible. It says, Little children, keep yourself from idols, false gods, from anything and everything that would occupy the place in your heart due to God, from any sort of substitute for Him that would take first place in your life. That's what idols are. And God is angry at idolatry, and His judgment will come because of it. Are you, being, are you having idols in your life? Are there things that you're trusting in that are not from God, that are not of the living God? If so, you're an idol worshiper, and the persistent worship of that will bring God's anger on your life. Exodus 34, 14. Exodus 34, 14 says this. You shall not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. And see, God has a holy jealousy, not like our human, petty, selfish jealousy. But God has a holy jealousy that is consistent with his love and justice. And God desires that we serve him alone, that he may be our God and we might be his people. God is jealous for your attention. He's jealous for your worship and he's jealous for your praise. And it's, 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 it's the same context of a man and his wife. A man is jealous for the wife of his love in a righteous sense. And he is offended when she is unfaithful to him or vice versa. In the same way, God has said, you are my bride. And I want you to give all of your devotion alone to me, for I am a jealous God. So God cares that much about us. He wants all of our attention. And he doesn't want us sharing our life or our trust with any other idol. God does not share the marriage bed with other idols. The second area is immorality. The second major area where God is what God is angry with. Verse 8 says, Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. 23,000 people were judged when they acted in an immoral way. That says something, doesn't it, about what how God looks at immorality. You see, idolatry is unfaithfulness to God. Immorality is unfaithfulness to one another. This instance is described in Numbers 25. Numbers 25, verses 1 through 9. It says this, While Israel remained at Shittim, then the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. In other words, they began to have sexual relations with these daughters of Moab. For they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. Is God angry when we commit fornication, impurity, and all sorts of sexual sin 
Yes, his anger burns against us as New Testament Christians. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you slay his man who you have joined to get who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. Then behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought his relative brought to his relatives a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel while they were weeping at the doorway, the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman, through the body, so that the plague of the sons of Israel was checked, and there and those who died by the plague were twenty four thousand. Twenty four thousand of them were caught, were guilty of committing immorality, and and because of God's anger, they were they were simply eliminated from the nation of Israel. That's God's anger towards sexual sin, and it's not to be tolerated in our lives. The third one, verse nine of First Corinthians ten. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor let us try the Lord. So this is God's anger at impatience and rebellion. God's anger at impatience and rebellion. This is found in Numbers 21, verses 4 through 6. Numbers 21, verses 4 through 6. It says, Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go about the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. See, God wasn't going fast enough. And so they began to get him, excuse me, they began to get impatient. And the people spoke against God and Moses Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Now, we've heard that before, haven't we? This is about the third time this has happened. For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. And that was the manna that God was giving them daily. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. So God's anger was manifested in in the way that serpents came into the midst, and a bunch of them died that day because of their impatience and rebellion towards the will of God. See, the Old Testament so clearly demonstrates in a physical way God's anger. Things really happen. You know, imagine being out there and seeing 10,000 of your friends die by serpents or by through the sword. In that other instance, that one, there was actually two people caught in adultery in their tent. And, and the, 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 the priest of the Lord put a spear through the both of them. That's, how ang- that's the anger, the righteous anger of God against those things. And finally, number four is in verse 10. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Grumbling and complaining. Grumbling and complaining is a sin that God is angry with. Now, the context of this was grumbling against spiritual authority. In order to move an entire nation from one place to another requires responsible authority and strict obedience from the nation that is involved. If the authority supervising the journey were undermined, then the lives of all the people involved would be jeopardized. 
God couldn't afford to let there be a mutiny out in the middle of the desert because all of the two and a half to three million people's lives would be in danger. And God was showing Israel that they must submit to God's delegated authority. They must not murmur against Moses and must not challenge his authority. And this is found in number 16. Numbers chapter 16. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, and the sons of Elib, on the son of Peleth, and the sons of Reuben took action. And they rose up before Moses together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, chosen in the assembly, men of renown. And they assembled together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You have gone far enough, for all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? So these these 250 guys led by Korah came and they came with a rebellious spirit and they're saying, Moses, you're not the only one that can hear from God here. We can hear from God and we want part of the show. We want to help run this show here. Goes on, Moses heard this, he fell on his face and he prayed to the Lord and the next day judgment came, verses 41 through 45. says, but on the next day, well, no, what happened was that... um, the ground opened up. I don't have those verses marked, but the ground opened up and swallowed all of the families of these 250 men because Moses said, tomorrow we will see who the anointed of the Lord is. And so all these families got together in the middle of the camp and Moses was there and the ground literally opened up and swallowed those 250 families and Korah. Verse 31, okay. Then it came about as he finished speaking, Moses All these words that the ground that was under them split open and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up, their households and all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol and the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And so God demonstrated again his anger towards rebellion, towards God's anointed authority. Now the next day, the people didn't understand what God was saying. And so they began criticizing Moses. And in verse 41, it says, But on the next day, all the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled, there's the sin, grumbled against Moses and Aaron, saying, You are the ones who have caused the death of the Lord's people. It came about, however, when the congregation had assembled against Moses and Aaron, that they turned toward the tent of meeting, and behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. Then Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from this congregation, that I may consume them instantly. Now that's enough to put the fear of God in your heart towards rebellion. God was angry enough to destroy the whole nation, to simply execute judgment on them and start over with Moses and Aaron. But Moses and Aaron fell on their faces. They prayed, and a plague went out among the people. And, and, and through Moses' intercession and, and through the incense that made atonement, the plague was stopped. But still, 14,700 died besides the ones who had died the day before when Korah and his gang went down into the earth. 
So God is very angry when we murmur against God's spiritual authority. That, that has to do with spiritual leaders, with pastors, has to do with talking about men of God, has to do with talking about people that are doing God's work. God hates rebellion and he hates grumbling. And the anger of God burns when we, when we participate in, in those sins. And so the, the four things that God is anger is towards us in the New Testament is idolatry, which is putting our security in something other than God. Immorality, all forms of immorality, whether it be, well, just any form of immorality, whether it be in deed, word, or action, or thought. God is angry towards that. He's angry when we're impatient with people and with God. He's angry at rebellion, and he's angry at complaining. He's angry when we complain about our circumstances, complain about our leaders, complain about this, complain about that. God's anger burns against that. Now, I want to balance the whole thing of the anger of God with this scripture, Psalm 78, 38. Because we need to step back and we need to put this in perspective. Psalm 78, 38 says this. But he, being compassionate, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them, and he often restrained his anger. Scripture also says in many other places that God is slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. So God is not one who's quick on the draw as far as his anger goes. He only arouses his anger when he absolutely has to. God's not easily insulted. He's not easily aroused. But when he is aroused, his anger is, is, is very much there and it's, it's something to be greatly feared. And so we asked the question at the beginning of the class today. We said, I wonder if God's angry with me today. You can answer that question by asking, are you participating in these sins? Are you openly and defiantly participating in these sins? I'm not talking about by ignorance or by default, but it's those who practice those things that God is angry with. It's those who refuse to deal with immorality in their lives. Those who refuse to deal with grumbling. Those who refuse to deal with impatience. And those who refuse to deal with idolatry. That's when God's anger is kindled. Not when we're seeking to do what's right and we're just in the process of learning. God's very patient. But it's when we defy God and says, God, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do my own thing. That's when his anger burns against us and we'd better fear his anger. Amos chapter 4. I want, to, I want to close today with this record of God's dealing with Israel during this time. Chapter 4 of Amos. Amos is one of the minor prophets. It says, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, Bring now that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness, Behold, days are coming upon you when they will take you away with meat hooks and the last of you with fish hooks. You will go out through the breaches in the walls, each one straight before her, and you will be cast to Harmon, declares the Lord. Enter Bethel and transgress. In Gilgal, in Gilgal multiply transgression. Bring sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a thank offering also from that which is leavened, 
and proclaim free will offerings, make them known, for you so love to do, you sons of Israel, declares the Lord. But I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. And furthermore, I withheld the rain from you while there was still three months until harvest. Then I would send rain on one city, and on another city I would not send rain. One part would be rained on, while the part not rained on would dry up. So two or three cities would stagger to another city to drink water, but would not be satisfied. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I smote you with scorching wind and mildew, and the caterpillar was devouring. Your many gardens and vineyards and fig leaves and olive trees, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent a plague among you after the manner of Egypt. I slew your young men by the sword along with your captured horses. I made the stench of your camp rise up in your nostrils, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord." I overthrew you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you are like a firebrand snatched from a blaze. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, I will do this to you, O Israel, because I shall do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what are his thoughts He who makes dawn into darkness and treads on the high places of the earth. The Lord of hosts is his name. And here we have God pleading and dealing with weather judgments, with famine judgments, with with the sword coming and wars coming. And he's trying to get the attention of Israel. And over and over God says, yet you have not returned to me. Though I've inflicted these, these afflictions upon you, yet you have not learned from them and you have not returned to me. And, and, and can't you see that if a person or a nation continues to spurn the loving grace of God, that all that is left is his eternal indignation and anger? When God makes ovations to to draw people back to himself and all they do is continue to rebel, all there's left is God's anger. And may this, this understanding of God's anger today begin to be a real deterrent in our own lives that we will have a fear of sinning against God. Just as we, we discuss God's holiness, that is, in his holiness and purity, there's just a fear of sinning. May we also understand that God is angry when we rebel against his loving will, because his loving will is given from his fatherly heart, and he only wants the best for us. And he's angry with us when we don't accept and receive that. May the Lord reveal to us in a new way his anger towards sin. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you are slow to anger, Father. Thank you that you don't often arouse your anger, Lord. But, Father, we need to know, as New Testament believers, we need to know, Lord, when you're angry. And I pray that in each one of our lives here, Father, we will understand your anger. And, and Lord, I don't understand much about your anger, Father. And I'd ask you to reveal that to me as well as all of us here today, Father. I pray that you'd reveal that to us in Jesus' name. And Lord, because as we understand your anger, we're not going to be so quick to sin. And we're, instead of 
the people of Israel that rebelled and didn't please you, Lord. We want to be like Jesus, the model son, who said, Father, I want your will to be done. And Lord, we want to make it as the supreme desire of our hearts to please you in every respect. And everything, Lord, that would not be pleasing in your sight, we would commit to you and say, Lord, we want to throw it out of our lives and only do those things that please you because you're the great God of Israel and you're worthy of our honor and praise. And Lord, you're worthy of our honor and obedience and devotion all throughout our lives, Father. And I pray that your Holy Spirit will take these things and make them real to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Dick Schroeder Podcast. For more teaching and discipleship resources from Dick, visit fatherheartministries.net.